0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer.
1: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist podcast. This is our Christmas special that we record every year in December. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and I'm joined on the line this morning by Dr. Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College. Uh, How cold is it there in Minnesota, Michael? Cold enough that
0: my cable internet stopped working, Nathan.
1: Yeah, we talked about this before the show, listeners. Apparently, it can get so cold that electrons won't move. Uh, So I didn't know that, but then again, I live in Georgia. Uh, Unfortunately, this morning, we are not with Danny Anderson. Uh, Danny is out of town. Uh, So it looks like, Michael, we're going to have to record this as a two-man show on Milton.
0: And you're going to have to carry it, man, because as you can hear, I am sick and my voice is barely there.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I... It's just one of those times where I wish I had a third person, because this is one of those poems that really rewards bouncing ideas off of each other. Wait a minute. What's that?
0: I think it might be a group of carolers. Why
1: don't you get the door, Michael, see who it is. Hello, are you the butler? Grubbsy! It's David Grubbs!
2: (laughs) Which one of you is Bing Crosby?
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be, be careful, Bing Crosby died right after that, man.
2: So oh, I, I no. guess it's
0: me.
1: <laughs>
2: That's not good.
1: Oh no. That's right, listeners, for a special one time appearance. Uh we have David Grubbs back on the podcast. David, who of course is an is a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. I haven't done your intro for a while, Grubbs. Uh, how are you doing this morning?
2: I'm 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 pretty good. good. Not as not as cold as Michael. All right. I mean, still, still cold, but you know, our voices are they're...
0: about the same pitch today, though. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, now that we've got a trio, uh we should do some listener email. Uh, Michael, why don't you take the first one?
0: All right. This is from Steve Smith. He says, "Hey guys, quick, quick question. Oh man, I can't even read today." Do any of you know of any good daily devotionals for Christian intellectuals? I picked up a devotional by A.W. Tozer, thinking it might be an intelligent offering, but this little gem. Well, I said, better to go to the clink than to go to hell. You'll get out of the clink, but you'll never get out of hell. Kind of killed it for me. <laughs> you guys have any suggestions for daily devotionals?
1: Oh, goodness. I, I, I And this is one of those places where I, I'm definitely a kindred spirit with C.S. Lewis because there's the bit in mere Christianity where he says that for some people doing a difficult bit of theology is far more devotional than reading a devotional. Um, and of course he writes it much better. He talks about a pencil behind your ear and all that good stuff, but, uh, I'm definitely one of those folks. So, uh, for devotionals, I read Walter Brueggemann and N.T. Wright. Uh, David, are you any (laughs) more help than I am?
2: Uh, See, I I would pitch devotions upon emergent occasions. (laughs) Um, but uh, who, whose
0: is that, David? I recognize the name, but I can't.
2: In in Dunn. Oh, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. 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 It, um, Dunn's devotions upon emergent occasions, where basically he 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 meditates on being sick and the sick, theological significance of the phases thereof. Um, but there's also, um, you know, it's it's not daily devotions for the calendar year, but there's a lot of, um. Devotional works by uh, kind of big names out there, you know, Bernardo Clairvaux on loving God, which is just good, good to mull over, and um, so thing, things like that. But I, I, I don't, I don't typically, I don't typically do the daily devotional thing. I, you know, I do, I do what you do, Nathan. I, I get a book of theology, usually someone older <laughs> than the guys you're reading, but um, chew, chew, chewing over that is. Yeah, that's that's what I like to do.
1: Michael, do you do the devotional thing? No, I don't. But I know that they have um,
0: they have a couple of books of Frederick Biekner's, like excerpts from his work that are set up as daily devotionals. So I like I like Buechner, So yeah, I can I can recommend those. I think one of them is called Listening to Your Life.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I, now that you mentioned that, Michael, my uh, second year Greek professor in seminary actually read an excerpt from that book at the beginning of each class
0: yeah and and that's just that's just uh, short excerpts from his other nonfiction. uh-huh so so there's i don't think there's anything new in that one or there's another one too but uh you know if you're looking for it uh I, is a intelligent guy a thoughtful guy
1: right now as far as daily prayers i can definitely recommend without hesitation the book of common prayer you can get a copy relatively inexpensively online uh or you can use an mm-hmm. online edition for that matter and i mean it's very nice for ordering ones. I, I would say spiritual life, uh, without it necessarily being a devotional work per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Brett, won't you read the next email?
0: Brett is the person who emailed. He is not actually yes, on the David, show. Yes, David,
1: why don't you read Brett's email, son of a gun? <laughs>
2: Brett, 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 come, come, read your email. i can't i can't do the doorbell thing okay there you go um uh uh, nathan david and michael which okay uh, you can tell which episodes he's been listening to um (laughs) i first learned of the christian humanist back in august of 2013 uh since then i've been a devoted student i like that I love this podcast. I've been telling all my friends about it. In fact, I just bought mugs that I'll be using for Christmas gifts for myself and some friends who are pastors in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Luther, Calvin, Erasmus, and Thomas Thomas Aquinas. Um,
0: Didn't that line give you a heart attack, Mason?
1: Yeah, I I started trying to remember how many times I've taken pot shots at Christ the Center, and I've I've lost count, so I... (laughs) Sorry, guys, if you're listening... (laughs)
0: Do you think Jeff Waddington's going to get one of those mugs?
2: Mm, I, I want to find the OPC pastor who wanted an Erasmus mug and go and shake his hand for or, being a stand-up
1: or, or an Aquinas mug. Oh, I don't know. On Christ the Center, they usually speak fairly approvingly of Thomas Aquinas.
0: Well, at least he wasn't PCUSA, right? <laughs> um,
2: so, back to the... I have started with episode one in early August, and I'm now at episode 73, which is Patience. Uh, I have a 45-minute commute to work, and three of you often ride with me and teach me about literature, philosophy, theology, and other things that humans do well. Oh, I really enjoy the. formulation.
1: Per- I should write that down.
2: Yeah, I think it'd be good for show intros. Uh, <laughs> I really enjoy the diversity of experience and perspective that the three of you bring uh, to the podcast. Topics and conversations cause me to think thoughts I've never thought before. So um skip into the end thanks again for all the time and effort you put into this podcast over the years it's enriched my life and could very well have a lasting impact on my two sons uh, whom earlier he says i totally intend to send them to a christian college to get humanities degrees and we say yes by all means yes please do um, we've got some good suggestions your, integra- <laughs> yeah. your integration of love for god faith in christ ecumenicity and engaging human culture is a rich experience your Devoted Lover, Brett Chase, Lake Forest Park, wah. He
0: does wah. say Devoted Listener, by the way, not Devoted Lover.
2: Did I say Lover? You, you did. you yes, did. I don't want
0: to know where your head was.
2: <laughs> uh, okay, There's all right. Dr. To be, Freud. <laughs> to be fair, I just got done designing a Britlet one final for, like, the latter half of Britlet, in which we were doing an awful lot of Marvell and Herrick and whatnot. Okay, so. fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 kind of in a you know dirty John Dunn headspace at the moment. So,
1: <laughs> nice. Well, Michael, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip one and then come back to you. Jordan Poss wrote in a fairly long email, so I'm gonna do a bit of summarizing. First of all, uh, he gives us his backstory. Uh, he's recently moved to a new city, gotten married, uh, taken a job as an adjunct instructor in history. Uh, because he and his wife share a car. He is in the car about two hours daily, which is what I generally drive to and from work, which is why I listen to a whole mess of podcasts, too. Uh, but he has used our podcast actually to refamiliarize himself with some old material, some of our medieval episodes, some of uh, our trio on the Federalist Papers, uh, which I remember enjoying recording. Uh, he listened recently to our Politics of the English Language episode, and he lands... Fairly predictably, with Danny and Michael over against me, saying that we shouldn't make too much of Orwell's linguistic chauvinism.
0: I have to correct er- you, Nathan, and I feel like I'm doing nothing but correcting in this email segment. Uh-oh. Uh I was actually with with you on this. I I. Uh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. Francophile that I am, I I I, I called him a uh, pompous British twit, I believe.
1: Oh, okay, okay. okay for okay. his yeah.
0: prohibition on Latinate words.
1: Oh, see, I thought I was meaner to Orwell than anyone else was. Okay, so I, I remember it badly. That's all right. That's all right. Um, what he says is that uh, Orwell's own biography would no doubt contribute to his distaste for this kind of language, since he did serve in the Spanish Civil War, uh, and of course was, you know, part of the apparatus of the British Empire before that. So I, I, I think he does well to note that you know Orwell had good reasons. To have some distaste for these Latinisms. Uh, what I'm interested in is Jordan provides us with a nice, healthy list of potential episode ideas, all of which seem pitched to uh, Danny, David, and Michael's interests. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which Mostly is David's, right, I,
0: thought, I thought. every Almost every one of these would be great for when David comes back.
1: Yeah, yeah, so here's his list of potential episodes. Uh Jordan rest assured some of these will become shows. Uh I'm I'm just going to go ahead and say that with some confidence. Uh Tolkien's mm-hmm. ideas on art and literature, that sounds fun. Uh a dedicated Beowulf episode with the Grubbs fanfare, oh. we might have to re-record the fanfare if I remember right the file got lost. Yeah. Uh an episode on Batman, which sounds pretty righteous. An episode on conspiracy theories, that's why I was thinking of Danny. An episode on the Coen mm-hmm. brothers, which is why I thought of Danny. An episode of G.K. Chesterton, which is for you guys. Uh, an episode <laughs> on Arthurian Legend, Grubzy. Anything else y'all care to put together mm-hmm. about Dante? I guess that's the one bone he threw me. Uh, and then he says he finishes his list saying, I'd love another great book, terrible movie episode. There are just so many, and I have to agree. I think we could do another one of those.
0: You know the great thing about the great book, terrible movie episode? What's no that? No episode prep.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) All right, Michael, won't you read our last listener email that we're going to talk about today, and then we'll move along into the subject matter.
0: This is from Logan Hoffman, who is also a new listener. He says, I just recently discovered your show, and I'm really enjoying the subjects discussed, be it the Crusades or Star Wars. I take issue with some of the distaste expressed to certain films, for example, Star Wars and Bram Stoker's Dracula but it's nothing if not provocative. Anyway, I'd be interested if you'd do an episode focusing on new atheism. It seems to be a recurring issue that I encounter, and I'm curious to hear all of your thoughts and critiques of the subject matter. Once again, love the show and wish you the best.
1: Yeah, I would have to wing it for a lot of a new atheism episode, but I think we could patch one together.
0: Oh, I feel like we would just be courting the scorn of the internet atheists.
1: Yeah, but wouldn't it be fun?
0: <laughs> uh. I mostly like to watch conflict between other people, not not <laughs> participated in it myself.
1: Yeah, and I actually like to find the hornet's nest and poke it with the stick. Yeah. So,
0: see, that's why you and I are friends, though, Nathan, because you can you enjoy fighting, and I enjoy watching people fight.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, Na- Nathan loves the the, the internet scorn. Nathan, it's like his breakfast cereal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Well, gosh. And I wish I could deny that, David, but just this morning I, I waded into another uh, feud between uh, the Homebrewed Boys and some of their uh, frequent interlocutors. So, yeah, I really can't stay out of the fights.
0: I don't call him <laughs> Mad Dog for nothing.
1: <laughs> yep. All right. Well, guys, let's go uh, ahead. Or at
0: all, I should say.
1: <laughs> well. <laughs> <that's-> <laughs> let's go ahead and jump into the subject matter. Since this is our Christmas episode, I wanted to do some nativity poetry and my favorite nativity poem is of course, John Milton's, uh, ode on the nativity of Christ. Uh, David, since you're back and since you're our historical background guy, uh, what is John Milton doing with his life in 1629 when he publishes this poem? What poems of his has he already published that people might already know? And what in his
2: career is still to come? Well, in 1629, if he's writing this around Christmas, uh, if I remember correctly, um, looking at the, you know, kind of timeline of his, of, of his life, 1629 was when he finished his uh, bachelor's degree. So he's he's just gotten his BA um, earlier that year. If he's if he's writing this around Christmas time, uh, do we know when exactly in the year he wrote this? Or is it just kind of a guess, anyway?
1: Uh, as far as I know, it's just a guess.
2: Okay, so he he he's got his BA um from Cambridge, um at this point, uh he's I guess looking looking toward the MA, which he then goes on for. Um, what kind of poems might people already know? Uh, he hasn't written anything yet that's been published. Um, he's written. Written a lot of uh, schoolboy verse. He's written a lot of Latin verse, um, but it's all it's all private. It's all st- stuff that, so far as I know, nobody saw until after he died, and there was interested in you know excavating all the Milton poetry people possibly could. Um, he's still a few years out from uh, from Comus, his first uh, really big work. Um, couple years from now he'll do um, oh a couple years from now he'll have his first his first poem published on Shakespeare in the second folio of Shakespeare's works uh, it's that's in 1632 um, so yeah he's he he's this is this is before the beginning if that makes sense it's like uh, it, it's like we're watching you know one of Spielberg's student films or something um, this this is a not 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 a juvenile effort I, I think it's a fairly mature poem but he has not yet come to the public eye um any anything else about him that we want to bring up i mean we could talk about his rustication or stuff like that
1: no i mean that's basically what i wanted to, to serve up here i mean let our listeners know that i mean this is uh milton before milton got famous uh you know mm-hmm. he has nothing to prove at this point uh, because you know he he doesn't have any previous poems to live up to, uh, which is yep. one of the things that makes this a fascinating poem for me.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting because he's he's got he's got no re- reputation to build up or live down. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you know, a- everything that's most controversial or most admired about him uh... lies in his future. So, this is a fairly a fairly unencumbered Milton about the only thing that he's got to live down is, you know, having been suspended from Cambridge for fighting with his tutor.
3: <laughs>
2: but <laughs> he, but they let him back, so it can't have been too bad.
0: He's 21 when he writes this, isn't he?
2: Yeah. It's
0: uh, deeply shameful to the rest of us, isn't it? Imagine what you were writing at 21.
2: I'm really embarrassed of 21-year-old me right now. Well, I mean,
1: there's only so many John Milton's in history. Let's be honest about that. I mean, I, I mean, even among our own contemporaries, you know, I, well, I mean, I look at you know a a Matthew Lee Anderson, who I'll be interviewing on Christian Humanist Profile soon, and a Trip Fuller, or for that matter, a Michael Farmer, who's published in six different academic journals by the time he's thirty. <laughs> and, I, and I say when I consider how my life is spent.
0: <laughs> hey, I, I actually I only had I only had two rather rather shameful publications by thirty, so I'm not worth admiring.
1: All right, all hmm. right, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, David, I, I think that intro is precisely what we need here because, unlike, for instance, Paradise Lost, in which a a sharp literary critic can find an allusion to his previous poetic and political career on you know just about every other page uh this one like you said i mean has almost no autobiographical elements to it at all uh which again when you think about milton's reputation in literary criticism as a someone who does sort of theological autobiography uh again this makes it a a fascinating poem to look at so thanks for queuing that up Uh, michael we've talked in previous episodes, and in fact, I think it was in a a Christmas episode when we talked about the uh, the Incarnation, if I remember right, uh, we've talked about Milton's late career rejection of the Trinity as, a, as valid Christian doctrine. Uh, he didn't think it was biblical enough. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me about the Nativity Ode before it breaks into the hymn proper uh, is that it says some things that strike me at least as historically orthodox uh what do you make of those early lines and their treatment of the person and natures of the sun
0: i assume you're mostly talking about the first two stanzas of the of the poem and you're right it is um especially for milton uh relatively orthodox in fact Uh i don't think even relatively i think it's i I don't i don't think any anybody who who says the creeds would find much to complain about in those first two Uh sections You, you get the idea that um Christ is the, the son of God and and uh also the son of Mary virgin virgin mother born he says that he is the bringer of redemption to human beings mm-hmm. uh as as is foretold by the prophets uh even you even get i think uh kind of a vision of the substitutionary atonement which which is uh, uh you know not in the first two creeds, as far as I know, as far as I remember, but, but is at least something usually associated with conservative Christianity that he, our deadly forfeit should release and with his father work us a perpetual peace. But then the, the second stanza is the one that interests me because you get this kind of courtroom scene in heaven, which is, is later going to be echoed, I believe in paradise lost is it book three
1: where yeah, I keep um, talking I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I guess I have to say what I mean where, where, <laughs> where you, you get this, this kind of board meeting in heaven, um, and and God the Father asks who who will volunteer to be the sacrifice for for uh, humanity and and Christ kind of raises his hand when all the angels won't you you get a, a prelude to that here in the second stanza of On the Morning mm-hmm. of Christ's Nativity that glorious form that light unsufferable and that far beaming blaze of majesty wherewith he wanted heaven's high council table to sit in the midst of tri- uh, trinal unity he laid aside and here with us to be forsook the courts of everlasting day and chose with us a darksome house of mortal clay so so you get you get th- this idea that christ many many years ago bef- before long before he actually came to earth volunteered to come to earth and this is this is something he did out of the trinity um which i guess you really can't say about that uh board meeting in heaven and is, it, is that book three of paradise lost
1: well yeah i mean then there's the the grand critical question of whether the systematic theology in Day of Doctrina is consistent with what happens in Paradise Lost, but that's another episode. Well, yeah, I knew, that's I knew a, that. That's several doctoral dissertations right there. Yeah, <laughs> but but here
0: here certainly you don't find a whole lot to complain about if you're a creedal Christian, I don't think.
1: Right. Um, so, mm-hmm. And then, Michael, I mean, just to carry it two lines into stanza three there, I mean, Say, Heavenly Muse shall not thy sacred vein afford a present to the infant god. Uh, (laughs) you know, if, if, and this is one of those things, you know, people's theologies do not remain consistent over their lifetime sometimes. Uh, and here, I mean, early in his career as a 21 year old man, Milton makes reference to Jesus as infant God, not something you would necessarily see in the day doctrina.
0: (laughs) Nathan, can you give us an since you're so fond of this phrase, an elevator speech talking about Milton's supposed heresy at the end of his career, because I think that's something that that people who haven't studied Milton, I've never read *De Doctrina Christiana, um, who haven't studied Milton closely would really know about.
1: Well, I'm going to give a brief version, then I'm going to lateral over to David to fill in the blanks. Uh, Basically, in *De Doctrina... Uh, which scholars are are fairly certain is actually from the pen of Milton, although uh, it passed through some hands before it actually reached publication. Um, Milton lays out a case against uh, the traditional notion that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, uh, co-eternal with God, largely based on uh, verses from the New Testament that referred to Christ as the firstborn of creation, uh, as one who uh became the son of god uh as one who you know uh seems to have a narrative existence that you know at least in a poetic sense makes reference to a genesis point to a beginning uh so i mean because of de doctrina largely people in the last 200 years give or take uh have been really reevaluating paradise lost especially book 3 that michael just alluded to uh, sort of combing it for signs that Paradise Lost either resonates with or departs from what he wrote in De Doctrina. Uh, David, what holes there would you fill in?
2: Um, one of his main concerns in in De Doctrina is the the adherence to the adherence to scriptural language and and defining uh God in God's being and and person and the person of Christ in his in his being and and his person who is who is he and what is he um he he he, he wants us to stick to bible words and mm-hmm. if you read um if you go back and read book 3 of Paradise Lost uh you I I I uh, taught that taught that book uh, a couple weeks ago and was struck by the degree, um, the degree to which, uh, he's, he's simply channeling, um, scriptural language through much of it. Um, not, not just lifting phrases and titles, but even paraphrasing in meter, uh, entire passages, um, hmm. to, to describe the relationship of father and son and the work of the son, um, in in incarnation, but also the, the, the glory of the Son uh at the Father's right hand before and after the incarnation. Um so in, in that someone who's you know who has a historically creedal orthodoxy can read Paradise Lost book three and rejoice in worship. Um because he sounds like the Bible
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. sure, sure um I mean, you'd be hard pressed uh, to find a more uh, biblical poet than Milton.
2: Yeah, and and so and so if 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 you know if 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 you're bringing to it um, a creedal orthodoxy, I don't think you're going to find anything in Paradise Lost, Book Three that's going to offend your creedal orthodoxy. You might, after learning about deductrina, come back to it and ask, "Hmm, what does he not say?" you might you might ask those questions um and interesting, I think it's in you know in 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 the nativity poem there actually is uh in uh, some Nicene language some some Nicene creed language oh uh, sure the light unsufferable, the far beaming blaze of ma- majesty um you have that that light of light that mm-hmm. um, I, I think he's basically doing poetically that light of light phrase uh in in the Nicene Creed, which is all about. Same substance, same essence, homoousios, light, light, of light. Um, I'd have to go back to book three to see does he does he use that language there too. But I note him doing it here.
1: Oh so, yeah, absolutely, I mean, absolutely.
2: I, I don't think I don't think Milton wants to be taken out into the town square and stoned as a Socinian for Paradise <laughs> Lost. <laughs> so you know, I I, I think. I think he could do what he did in book three and be acceptable, Mm -hmm. um, acceptable broadly and also cool with his own conscience.
1: Right. Right. And then, I mean, I mean, we can't talk about this responsibly without mentioning the politics of literary criticism, uh, for folks who Mm. gain a certain social capital from being subversive, uh, just to use one of the favorite catchphrases, uh there is a certain uh, benefit to offering readings of milton as a sort of subversive ninja heretic who is secretly sneaking doctrines <laughs> in uh so i mean i you know and, and I, obviously i mean i'm i'm trivializing that strand of criticism a little bit but i, I think it's there
3: mm
1: and of course, I, I'm realizing this. I'm, we're going to be dropping this episode about a week after I criticize certain people in that homebrewed Christianity exchange for psychological, or for psychologizing their opponents. Uh, so I'll, I'll just say, uh, you'll you'll seldom find a bigger hypocrite than me, and just leave it there. <laughs> uh, well. David, I want to I want to continue into the poem and get a little bit deeper in here. I remember a while ago you wrote a blog post. I can't remember if it was on uh, your own personal blog or whether it was on The Christian Humanist about the so-called sympathetic fallacy. Uh, but I thought about that while I was reading the, the early going in this poem, and I, I thought it might be a good time for you to talk about that sympathetic fallacy and talk a little bit about whether you see it happening here. How does the large cosmic order of things respond to the advent of the sun in this poem? Uh and what would you say to folks who would say that such a move on Milton's part makes this a bad poem?
2: Well, the the sympathetic pala sympathetic fallacy um well what Ruskin calls the the pathetic fallacy which is that which is kind of funny I, I've. I want to say I've heard at least one person use the phrase "pathetic fallacy" to refer to um, inappropriate appeals to pity.
1: Yeah, that's how that's how I've usually <laughs> heard it used. And, as an informal error, as
2: opposed to and, the sympathetic. Yeah, and but in, in fact, you know, Ruskin used the phrase "pathetic fallacy" as you know to refer to this, Um huh. so i guess i i I'm imagining somebody came back later and said sympathetic in order to make it a little clearer basically it's uh what ruskin is is criticizing is the attribution of uh animate life um sentience um consciousness uh willed action to inanimate nature um you know, leaves don't dance. They look like they're dancing. They move <laughs> as though they're dancing, and uh, he f- he he thinks it's uh, a s- sign of of weak mindedness of not looking at the world as it is to uh, to write poems about leaves dancing or the sun smiling or whatever. Uh, you you need to uh, the poet needs to write about the world as it is and so be very overtly metaphor uh very overtly similitudinous i guess not met- just mm-hmm. metaphorical um come out and say this the this tree uh res- you know the leaf on the tree re- resembles the movements of dancing the sun shines down with a warmth that reminds me of a smile and so forth um frankly i think ruskin is full of it mm-hmm. um not just because I think uh, writing poetry under this principle um, ends up with less interesting and kind of pedantic poetry, <laughs> um, but also because I think his world is too small, mm-hmm. frankly. And that—that that I, I think is the problem. Here. Uh, the, the problem with applying that principle to Milton's Nativity poem, Nati- uh, Milton is not dealing with a you know late nineteenth early twentieth century scientific notion of a materialist universe um, it, the the universe that he describes in this poem is even self consciously antiquarian i mean he he knows about the heliocentric universe um, or the heliocentric solar system he he's he's living you know post Copernicus uh, but <laughs> um he's choosing to write a pretty medieval ptolemaic universe with you know the earth at the center of concentric spheres that sing as they turn um you know where the the uh, the sublunary world um uh, they talk about nature underneath Cynthia's seat um ruling and that and that idea of uh, the the whole world underneath the or the, the the orbit of the moon being being the realm of fallen nature and you know and here nature rules um, mutability change uh, a kind of feral uh, feral principle of 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 nature that is personified in the Middle Ages and so uh, when he talks about uh, the earth. Covering herself so that her god doesn't see her shameful nakedness, covering herself with snow. Um, mm-hmm. And snow being, you know, kind of the white clothing of innocence. Or the sun delaying to come up, to come up because it's, it's shy to reveal its face before one who is um, a truer sun. Um, or the spheres temporarily stopping in their course and waiting for permission to keep moving.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: you know, because the one who, because the prime mover, the one who sits outside the spheres and, and, and imparts to them motion has moved to the center of the spheres. He's he's relocated his position from outside them to inside them and so for a brief moment they pause, waiting to see what's the appropriate way to move now that the mover himself has moved <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I I, I... I think it's lovely. I, 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 just, I just love the world in here. I love its aliveness. And I think it's, ev- I think it's even dispensable from Scripture. Um, you know, this is the creation that groans, you know. Right, uh, right. Um, you know, this is the, the earth and the sea rejoicing before the Lord because he comes. He comes to judge the earth. Um, right, you know, or the trees
1: I, clapping their hands when Israel returns from exile.
2: Yes. And, you know, Hosea got God making a covenant with the land and with the beasts and, you Mm -hmm. know, with all nature so that, you know, this this shalom that, you know, with which God graces his people, you know, in the ultimate day um, is not just is not just a peace that's given to to men of goodwill, but it's peace on earth as well. Um, Mm -hmm. It it's not just human beings that get saved. It's nature, too. And, mm-hmm. and I, I love how much that's in this poem. And right. n- even, even before humans are, are aware, nature knows what's coming.
1: Right. And, well, and what's interesting is human beings who act as forces of nature also stop doing what they're doing, because, you know, in uh, stanza four of the hymn proper, uh, no war or battle sound was heard the world around. The idle spear and shield mm-hmm. were high up hung. Uh, so i mean mm-hmm. the the idea is that you know even the the god of war so to speak takes a day off when jesus is born
2: yep i love that
0: which is interesting cuz it may or not be may or may not be true right it says king sat still with awful eye it's hard to read that without thinking about herod who who does not stand still with awful eye in fact he he kills every infant child in bethlehem
1: well sure
2: sure
0: I, I but assume... That's a
2: little later. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: I assume I assume "awful" is the uh, old-fashioned word meaning what we would we would say "awesome." Yeah, yeah. Yeah, full of awe, not like terrible.
1: Right, or one that inspires Wait. awe. Well, I mean, for good or bad reasons. I mean, that's that's one of those words, "awful," that unfortunately has narrowed in its connotations in the modern era. So
3: the
0: song should really be "Our God is an awful God."
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've proposed that to my. Emmanuel college students and they didn't much like it
0: for some reason.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but yeah, you, you're, you're obviously dealing with like a, uh, a spiritual realm here now, he's not talking literally, which is, I mean, I I'm with you, David. I think the distinction you made there between simile and metaphor is, is a good one. R- Ruskin wants us essentially not to speak metaphorically, which, you know, forget him. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's stupid. <laughs> There's some things I could say about Ruskin, but this is a family podcast. But <laughs> yes. I, I will encourage everybody to look up what happened to Ruskin on his wedding night.
1: <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> Taking yeah. podcasts of dead people, man.
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: well. Oh, that's that's what we do on this show, man. Um, well, Michael, uh, the, the main event of this poem, For My Money... Uh, is the demise of the gods when the son of Man, when the son of God arrives? Uh, mm. Take a few minutes to talk about this poem's way of imagining the relationships between the nativity and the old Levantine gods.
0: You know, all I could think of last night in my Nyquil stupor was that Christmas special you talked about last year, where Santa Claus is apotheosized. <laughs> <laughs> it's brought before the Council of Elders. You kind <laughs> of have that here too, except the Council of Elders instead of talking amongst themselves and, and allowing Christ into them shuts up. You you know, they're, they're no longer elders. Mm -hmm. So, so you get, I mean, it's, it's the bulk of the poem really is you, you get this, this, uh, world tour of gods. You get, Mm -hmm. um, the, the Babylonian gods, Moloch, and you know, there's the, the, the massacre of the innocents again, you get Balaam, you get the gods of the Nile, Iris and Oris and the dog Anubis. Um, you, you even get, um, never mind, I, I was going to say you get the Norse gods, but that's not true. Osiris is, is Egyptian. I get him confused yeah, with yeah. Odin many times. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is, all of these former mythologies, which once held sway, which were once reliable and even true, apparently, uh, are no longer true. Because they have all been superseded by the birth of the Christ child. And I I think here of, uh, I, I think it was a belief of C.S. Lewis's that Christianity fulfills not just the the mythology of Judaism, but the mythology of all religions, mm-hmm. and, and, and so one need not worry that many of the stories in the Bible feel like myths, because of course they do. They are myths in this deeper sense where they're still true, and where... W- you know where where the the person of christ fulfills all of world religion instead of just christianity it's it's a it's a move outward it 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 seems like a narrowing and i guess in some ways it is uh because they're all coming to this focal point but at the same time it is it is an acknowledgement that these other religions had although no longer have mm-hmm. power mm. It's, it's an oddly universalist move for a Puritan.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But a weird kind of universalism. Uh-huh. It's a, it's a, universe, it's a universalism by conquest.
0: It's a, it's a Christian, uh, you know, distinctively Christian universalism. Mm-hmm, I I, I would, I, you know, I, I see it most clearly in Lewis, who, who, depending on whom you ask, was himself a universalist. You know, you get that scene in the last battle where Aslan says, well, if you served all these other masters, you were really serving me and didn't realize it. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And I think there's something there's something similar here. Um, uh, Although I don't know if Milton would take it as far as Lewis does in in that book.
1: Yeah, I mean, what interests me is that, you know, uh, Milton, who obviously is, you know, just supremely biblically literate, uh, doesn't go with the sort of Isaiah 44 route that all of these gods uh, never were anything but blocks of wood that might've turned into gods or might've, you know, been firewood to roast your meat for the evening's meal. Mm. Uh, but rather the Christ event actually throws down these gods. Uh, so I mean that the text that I immediately thought of was Psalm 82, where, uh, Adonai comes into the assembly of heaven and starts throwing down rival Elohim who do not give justice. Um, And granted, I mean, even in the New Testament, you get a reading of that, that, you know, that's a reference to earthly kings. Uh, I would say, yes, and uh, you also have the Hebrew word Elohim there to describe those high officials. So I I think it is still a responsible reading to say that at the very least, you've got divine resonance there. And that's what I see here. I mean, in in this section of the poem is that uh, at the advent of the Son of God, uh, you know, he starts from Delphi and pretty much moves east from there. Uh all of these all of the all of these famous deities from the cultures surrounding Israel, uh all you're right, Michael. I mean, they're all rendered instantly powerless. What were you gonna say now?
0: That it actually begins even before Delphi, because in the third stanza, of the one you read earlier, uh huh. The muse is is roped into service of Christ.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay, you
0: know the muse is herself a goddess. So, um,
1: yeah, I, I I always forget that the muse is a goddess in Milton, though. Cause I, <laughs> in well, my he, mind, it, he, he it's does just something call, he mentions at the beginning does of a call poem. It the
2: Heavenly muse. <laughs> yeah, he, he does call it the Heavenly muse, though. So, you know, it, I, I wonder if he'd already developed the idea that, that he invokes at the beginning of Paradise Lost, where he's 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 kind of quotes. In- Equating the Holy Spirit with the Muse. See, I,
0: I, I take it in its
2: in its relationship I
0: take it, I take it to mean that the the Muse, like these other gods, is not so much vaporized as as brought into service of Christ.
3: Hmm.
2: Okay. Huh. Interesting.
1: Okay.
2: Um, I did want to say one thing about this. Um. the the oracles not being able to communicate, um, was actually a pretty standard piece of patristic apologetic. Um, Mm -hmm. you'll find in, oh, Eusebius of Caesarea, I think Augustine mentions it, um, a lot of different early apologetic writers in the, uh, third and fourth centuries, um, of Christianity will actually make the claim, which apparently had had at least some kind of historical currency, um, that people would acknowledge this. That uh, when that when Christ came, the oracles stopped talking. Hmm. Um. So so when when he talks about the, the oracles going dumb in line nine or in uh, in stanza nineteen. He, he's he's actually invoking he, he's actually invoking a commonplace um among the church fathers uh, the idea that you know the old gods d- did communicate because they were demons um, they communicated by inhabiting idols and speaking through them or inhabiting people and speaking through them mm. and that the coming of Christ um, binds those uh... deceptive false gods from being able to exercise the kind of influence the kind of jurisdiction uh, the kind of um, supernatural sway that they had before hmm. um, it's, it, it even shows up in um, there's an old English poem by Alfrich in which he talks about the apostle Bartholomew going to a temple of Astarte and as soon as he walks into that temple um, the demon who inhabits the idol can't speak anymore, and the demon from uh, the demon that inhabits a temple in like the next county over has to send a messenger to the priests of Astarte to explain to them why Astarte can't talk right now. It's because that guy over in the corner <laughs> won't let her. Hmm. <laughs> I'll yeah. be so, yeah. So so Mil- Milton's in tune with um, he, he's he's in tune with. With ideas, um, much much older uh, than the time he's living. I don't know. Maybe maybe then in Cambridge they were still they were still presenting this in whatever kind of um, apologetic divinity class or church history class or whatever. I don't know what their curriculum looked like.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But he'd encountered this somewhere, I think.
1: So in other words, I mean, locating this at the moment of the nativity might have been a poetic invention, but the event categorically is something that he probably called from history
2: yep absolutely cool yeah he's a smart guy <laughs> he's <a> good... <laughs> well
1: yeah i mean he, he read good... everything
0: yeah it's it's again shameful how much he read <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and it's all coming out
2: yeah in a very studently way all of his learning is coming out he's he's putting it all in here for for you to see
0: I'm confused, uh, though. I thought the purpose of poetry was to express individual
1: emotions.
2: <laughs> oh, here we go again. Well, we already <laughs> hit Ruskin, so we'll just hit Wordsworth too, and consider that done.
1: <laughs> oh, I get that. Dropped a pun on the end there, Honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, David, I, one of the things I tend to do when I talk about poetry is to rush past the form of the poem, and straight into the ideas, and I've done it again with these show notes. Uh, So take a moment, David, to back up for us and talk about the conventions of this poem. Uh, In what ways is this typical of 17th century English verse, and in terms of artistic mastery, uh, how does Milton practice verse writing in this particular piece?
2: Well, um, he has not yet attempted to persuade himself and others that, uh, unrhymed verse is the superior way to go. Um, because he's rhyming here. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found interesting is that the first four stanzas, um, the, uh, what would you even call it? The inv- the invocation, the, the proem, the, uh, whatever, uh, the first four standas are kind of an introduction, and then uh, after that comes uh, the main body of the poem, which he calls the hymn. Mm-hmm. So there, there's, a, there's a formal distinction here. This, is, this is a, looks like a classical distinction to me. Um, you have the invocation, in this case an invocation of the muse, uh, like what you, you, know, that you pointed to, Michael. Say, heavenly muse, shall not thy sacred vein afford a present to the infant God so you know he he in the first four stanzas announces the occasion this is the month and this the happy morn wherein the son of heaven's eternal king of wedded maid and virgin mother born so it's christmas time and O muse aid me as i you know sing something that probably has been attempted in you know prose and rhyme um so First he's that those are the larger structures: the introduction and the hymn itself. Um, it's stanzaic verse; uh, both the introduction and the hymn are divided into um, divided into very formal stanzas. Though he has different rhyme schemes for each, um, uh, which which I thought was interesting: um, an A B A B B C C rhyme scheme in the introduction and a BB or in an AAB, CC, DD, uh, rhyme scheme for the stanzas in the hymn. I tried to do something allegorical with that and was not success- <laughs> successful. Um, so is this typical? Yes, it's typical. It's, it's very structured. Um, it's very learned. It smells like done in that sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, very stru- structured, very learned, um, very metrical, very um, methodical with the rhymes. Um, some of the rhymes I don't think are entirely effective. Um, and he, I don't know, maybe he looked back at this one and and blushed at some of the some of his choices, and decided that rhyming was for the birds. <laughs> um, yeah, my
1: personal favorite is Peor and Baalim forsake their temples. Deem.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though, you, you kind of have to know that that when you're pronouncing the Hebrew there, that you pronounce the I like that. Oh, but, I know! I know. <laughs> but any anyway th- this this seems pretty this seems pretty typical for me it's it's not mm-hmm. you know it's not remarkable 17th century english verse it's it seems pretty normal um the stuff that i admire is, is you know his content his metaphors his phrases um the prosody is um you know nothing nothing for the history books Unless I'm missing something.
1: Michael, is he missing something?
0: Oh, I'm the wrong person to ask about form. Uh, I mean, I mean <laughs> the the uh, m- the meter changes quite a bit from line to line is about mm-hmm. all I noticed. But, uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, like I said, I'm not the person to ask about form. It's not something I usually think about either.
1: Right. I mean, and, you know, that's that's one of those things where, on one hand, it's unremarkable in its 17th century context. David's absolutely right. I mean, this is the same sort of thing that uh, someone who grew up reading Ben Jonson and John Donne would probably produce as a 21-year-old. Uh, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I, I still have to say of the era in general, uh, I still have a great and abiding respect for people who can do poetry within these rhyming metrical forms uh, without mm-hmm. making it sound hokey. Uh, and it's one of those things that I've you know, uh, it's not an entirely lost art. I realize people stu- still do write rhyming verse. Uh, I guess the other thing I would say is that uh, while it is structured and it does rhyme, uh, as you two have noted, it does take some liberties with the meter. So in other words, this is not a sort of uh, dogmatic ode form uh, exercise. I mean, this is something that does have some liberty to it. Uh, even though, you know, by 21st century standards uh, to us, it strikes the eye as very, very orderly and structured. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to fast forward a bit, Michael. Uh, One of the things that that strikes me about this poem, because we are doing a Christmas special, is uh, what a different kind of imagination of the nativity is. The occasion of this poem is, without a doubt, the season of Advent in the English Church. Uh, But in what ways, if any, does this poem connect with what we post-Charles Dickens moderns think of as Christmas? Uh, In what big-picture ways does this poem's imagined world differ from what Irving and Dickens and National Lampoon and other recognizable Christmas writers offer us?
0: Well, there's snow. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and there's a Christ child and i think that is about it we if if our listeners will think back all the way to our very first christmas episode wars on christmas you hmm. will remember that the puritans were no particular fan of the holiday and in fact it was banned in puritan new england for a, for a while in the 17th century so um it, it is not a surprise to see him not treating Christmas as this feast day where everybody comes together and blah 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 there's no emphasis on family there's really no emphasis on us as later Christians really mm-hmm. what you get is a flight of monsters um, more than you get anything we would recognize as Christmassy mm-hmm. um, and so in, in that sense it's it's kind of a useful correction to the hallmarkization or commercialization of uh of of Christmas in the United States because there's nothing here that you could commercialize, I wouldn't think unless you wanted to make action figures of the various gods. <laughs> That's what I was thinking of, which you know I would be in favor of. Okay, cool. It's like the it's like Krampus Carton.
2: Nah,
1: uh, uh, David, can you make that happen on Zazzle?
2: I uh, I don't know about action figures. Um, yeah though i i don't i mean what what would Moloch have like you know with real with you know real baby eating grip i mean
0: yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, what could be more Christmasy than a uh than a than a baby eating Babylonian deity
2: that would, well. would be swell.
0: although again I think it he might look like the Krampus. i mean i i wonder i wonder to what degree what degree those those weird kind of central European uh, I shouldn't even say weird or weird from our perspective, central European Christmas traditions <laughs> kind of tap into this poem without meaning to
1: because uh, resonate with it at the very least. Resonate, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean that that's about the closest thing to modern celebrations of Christmas. I think you're going to find in here.
2: Mm. <laughs> Is the the horde of Krampuses he- heading for the county line?
0: Can you believe that when I offered to dress up as the Krampus for my two year old niece, my sister told me no. <laughs> so, some people.
2: Awesome. <laughs> Has she no respect for Bavarian Christmas traditions? <laughs>
0: But yeah, I mean the, the the short answer is nothing. It has it has nothing in common with what we think of as Christmas. Again, other than the Christ Child and the snow.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
1: David, take it and
2: run. I. I mean the. Yeah the 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 snow the snow is there the Christ Child is there but the snow means something different. This is not the snow of which snowmen are made. You don't ah. you know. All right. This is this is the snow that garbs um embarrassed earth you mm-hmm. know um hide her from the gaze of her lord um you know basically the 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 king has come calling and caught nature you know unready and, and she throws on her bathrobe um mm-hmm. because uh it's, it's 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 all she has time for there's this this kind of you know hasty quick clean up he's here <laughs> um also it it has the nativity scene, right? The nativity scene that you'd rest, that you you'd recognize. You've got mm-hmm. a stable and you've got a virgin mother and you've got an, you know, infant holy infant lowly. Um but this this stable is now the center of the entire universe. Yeah. With with everything in it stopped for this moment and oriented to it and looking at it. Um you know the the these these stars themselves um stand fixed in steadfast gaze um and and they will not take their flight uh until their lord himself himself bespake and bid them go mm-hmm. so it's it's like this this moment that freezes time and that nativity scene which at the moment at my house is sitting on top of the television because we don't have a mantle. <laughs> um, that's the center of the universe. It's not the thing that you drag out after Thanksgiving and find some place to put it and, you know, hope, hope nobody breaks the baby Jesus or whatever. Cause he's ceramic and <laughs> grandma gave it to you. It, it, it's like, this is the center of the world.
0: And, and the deeper mystery is that even though Milton writes this poem where creation almost literally Stand still for it in in mm-hmm. real life, nobody notices
2: yep. this happens
0: mm-hmm. this happens in a jerkwater burg in, in a back alley and and, and, it yep. is, and is witnessed only by shepherds
1: right, although to be yep. fair, I mean the way the poem phrases it, uh, the kings stop waging war not in recognition but as if they surely knew. Mm-hmm. So I mean I I think there's some recognition of that. Yeah. You know,
0: I did think of something in the modern Christmas that this is like. Uh oh. Have you guys ever seen those nativity scenes with Santa kneeling in front of the baby Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you,
1: you kind of yeah. you
0: kind of do have that, right? Except instead of Santa it's the Krampus, it's the all these pagan gods. <laughs>
2: i don't think they're bowing i think they're running (laughs) well
1: yeah yeah i mean if milton got a hold of that he would say you know all of a sudden the elves went on strike and all of his toy making machinery broke (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they strung him up
2: (laughs) (laughs) now now (laughs) so i i do like the very last line um all about the courtly stable bright harnessed angels sit in order serviceable I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, this is a totally different nativity scene. You know, flanked with armies of angels to ready. That's that's really cool.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I, I what I notice most of all is sort of the moral philosophy that seems to govern a lot of expressions of moral- of modern Christmas, uh, where Christmas is this sort of cyclical season of the year where good sentiments a rise that had been masked apparently by the heat of summer or whatever the heck happened. Um <laughs> and, you know, the <laughs> I I never can explain that. Uh but, you know, I mean the idea is that Christmas simply uh fans the spark that lies at the heart of every human soul. Uh you know, the natural capacities we have to do good to our fellow human beings. Uh and this, I mean has no time for that. I mean, it is an actus Dei from beginning to end. Uh, It Mm. is the son of God coming into the world, dispelling idols, Uh, you know, creation for a moment, even the God of war, so to speak, uh, falls into line, acknowledges the sovereignty of the son of God. Um, And, you know, like Michael said, and like David said, I mean, it's a very refreshing alternate imagination to the very sentimentalist at the very least. And I would say almost uh secular humanist vision of Christmas that so often gets played out in Hallmark movies and jazz like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in my mind, it's good medicine.
0: Mm. Uh, you know, I think, um, I think it was the Wars on Christmas episode, where i suggested that christians celebrate both advent and christmas and also pagan winter solstice or whatever, you know, generic american winter holiday.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: So, you you yeah. know, corrective alternative uh alternative route Go down both. Still, oh
3: yeah, yeah. I
1: still have no, my, and I still good.
0: have my my santa claus figurines up at home.
1: <laughs> well, no, that that's a good set of categories, Michael. I mean, i I think you could make the argument that this is far more an advent poem than it is a christmas poem Mm. in those categories
0: it has it has the 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 melancholy you associate with like the great advent hymns Mm -hmm. oh come Mm -hmm. oh come emmanuel
1: right right
2: well Well, even well, even the advent theology of here he comes but this isn't the ultimate coming that's that's still that's still in the future And that's, I mean, that's the first, that's the first reading of, of first Sunday of Advent. Mm -hmm. You know, first coming came, second coming's coming, get ready.
0: The already not yet, as the uh, Calvinists like to say.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, that's not just the Calvinists. That's, (laughs) that's pretty standard (laughs) biblical criticism. Yep. Uh, Well, David, we are, well... We're never headed towards the end zone. Uh, But (laughs) taking a look at the time, I'm going to go ahead and start bringing this puppy dog to a close. Uh, As is always metaphor, as is always the case with these episodes, uh, what gets left out eclipses what got left in. Uh, So, David, give us a departing thought about Milton's poem, uh, then hand it off to Michael, who will hand
2: it off to me. Um, if you will indulge me as your special guests are, um, one brief note, this poem has wizards in it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, Milton used the, uses the word wizards instead of magi or wise men or, or kings from the East. He, the star led wizards. Um, so now it's, uh, I think Gandalf, Dumbledore and Merlin. <laughs> and the
0: cookie crisp wizard.
2: <laughs> yes, on 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 camels. Um, so that's awesome. Uh, the other thing, and and uh, you you actually you actually brought this to my mind, Michael. Um, th- a couple of places in here, first where um, Milton depicts Jesus as the real Pan, uh, the real God of mm-hmm. shepherds. Uh, and also he alludes to him as the, as the real hercules uh who who kills who kills snakes in his cradle um that's one of the earliest stories of hercules um might but it depicts this you know our babe his godhead uh, showed his godhead's true can in his swaddling bands control the damned crew so it's like these tiny tiny baby infant hands crushing The serpent, Um, but in him a demon when he was
1: only three.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you know, so so that so that Jesus is is the reality to which the best in those particular heathen gods and heroes pointed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've said my piece. I've 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 closed the puppy.
0: I don't even want to think about the process that entails. Um, We we, we already talked about, uh, ad nauseam, I suppose, about about how the, the poem fulfills pagan myths in Christianity. I want to point out it also fulfills philosophical naturalism, which was but a gleam in its daddy's eye at the time, Milton's writing. If you look at stanza 10, nature that heard such sound beneath the hollow round of Cynthia's seat, the airy region thrilling, now was almost one to think her part was done, and that her reign here it's less fulfilling even naturalism even the belief that the the natural world is all there is is fulfilled by christianity and and mm. and shunted aside or brought into the service of the uh the higher order if you prefer mm. nathan
1: very good uh one one thing that impressed me on this reading is actually stanzas 15 and 16 uh And it's the sense that the Advent is always a season of expectation and delay. Uh, Mm -hmm. Stanza 16, well, I mean, I'll start in 15. I mean, uh, the idea that creation at the Advent is ready to let truth and justice basically overtake the earth, drive out all corruption, so on and so forth. Uh, And then Stanza 16, but wisest fate says, no, this must not yet be so. The babe lies yet in smiley infancy that on the bitter cross must redeem our loss, so both himself and us to glorify ah uh, yet first to those chained in sleep, the wakeful trump of doom must thunder through the deep with such a horrid clang as on Mount Sinai rang while the red fire and smoulding clouds outbreak, and it rolls on for several lines other than that, but ah. Uh, again the idea that this is an an advent flavored poem uh it has at the core of it this sense that the divine justice is always delayed for us mortals uh that our cry is always how long even as we mm. sing our confidence in the risen lord uh so i think that you know again uh this idea that that milton brings out subtly in other parts of the poem there in stanza 16 uh comes forth in a really nice way so listeners that is our christmas episode for this year uh catch us again when we come up in probably january and then we'll have to see what kinds of episodes happen then if you want some idea of what's coming and when of course follow us on facebook take a look at the blog um Michael, I'm, I'm going to ask you, not what we're going to do next in January, but do we have a, a plan for a Best Songs of 2013 episode this year?
0: No, I don't think I have the time or energy to compile it.
1: All right, fair enough. Fair I enough. will, you
0: know, I'll tell you what my number one would have been, though, is uh, Pink Slips by Ockerville River. So I'll, I'll post, a, I'll link to that on the show notes, but uh, that, that, okay. that, that, that right. would certainly be my number one, but I don't have time to come up with a whole list.
1: Okay, all right. Well, I, th- that's been something I've listened to in years past to remind myself how out of touch I am with popular music. Uh, as I get uh, more out of
3: touch, it becomes harder.
1: <laughs> I, I'll, just, I'll just have to work <laughs> on that assumption at this point. Uh, well, back to web stuff here for a second. You can, of course, find us uh, at org on the web. You can find us on the Facebook page where we make a lot of our announcements about upcoming episodes. You can email us at the Christian at gmail.com. And we'll try to read those on the air. If we have time for that, uh, you can also go to iTunes. We encourage you to do that because the ratings and the reviews we get there uh, bump us up in their search algorithms and people who are looking for this sort of conversation uh, can join us because it's always more fun to have these conversations with, Friends. So in the meantime, as we await the coming of our risen Lord, and as we await the coming of the next episode, uh this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs saying, Let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.
4: In